Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast on a suppressively hot day in Washington, D.C., where we're thankful for last week's holiday siesta, but eager to dive back into the nation's tumultuous political scene. I'm Alex Roddy, local correspondent for McClatchy, coming to you from my coronavirus bunker in the nation's capital. Today, I am thrilled to be rejoined by Francesca Chambers, a McClatchy White House correspondent who, I think it can be said, we shared a bonding experience with me this week, trying to finish and publish a complicated story. Francesca, welcome. And you could even tell for those who are watching this, like we're even dressing the same now. We're in matching <laughs> outfits. We're in simpatico. What can I say? <laughs> of course, we are pleased to welcome back to the program David Cadneys, my fellow political correspondent at McClatchy, and someone who I can only presume has many, many thoughts to share about the Kanye West alleged run for the presidency. Dave, welcome. Oh, man, there have been so many deleted tweets that I've had set up this week that I'm like, you know, probably not a good idea. So save them for the, for the pod. I was going to say, just bring up the archive, your Twitter archive, and just read off all of those deleted tweets, if you could, for us. Coming up, we're going to examine Donald Trump's recent fixation on defending Confederate statues, which has confused even many GOP strategists as the president tries to regain the ground he's lost with voters over the last six weeks. But first... The battle for control of the Senate is getting more and more attention of late, as Trump's slipping poll numbers would seem to put the GOP's majority in grave danger. But maybe surprisingly, there's a group of Republicans who wouldn't be so sad if it went down in flames. A loose confederation of hashtag never Trump Republicans has begun working against some GOP incumbents, arguing, in a story Dave and I wrote recently, that to reboot the party, even Republican legislators need to lose re-election. Now, importantly, not all never Trump Republicans feel this way to say nothing of the broader party. But Dave, these actions at the Lincoln Project and elsewhere have ignited a real argument. Tell us about it. Yeah, so obviously these groups were formed to defeat Trump. And we should be clear, some of these Republican operatives are sort of been exiled from the party very early on. I mean, starting in 2016, they started to leave when Trump was the nominee last time before he became even became president. But what we noticed in this, you know, in the last couple of weeks is they've been really escalating their attacks on Republican senators who have varying degrees of loyalty to Trump. You know, they're, they're targeting Joni Ernst in Iowa. They're targeting Steve Daines in Montana. You know, most Americans probably don't even know who Steve Daines is. Most Montanans might not know who Steve Daines is. Right, <laughs> right. But because he votes with Trump and didn't stand up against him in, say, the Senate impeachment trial, they believe he is culpable and they believe that he needs to be defeated. So in essence, these Republican groups have almost become Democratic groups. When you look at it practically, they are not only trying to take down Trump, they're trying to take down the GOP Senate. And to some Republicans, this is like a step too far. Even some Republicans who are not Trump fans, uh, David Kochel, I think is sort of the prototype of that. Joni Ernst consultant who was Iowa-based, he now lives in Colorado, but a Republican that, that is not a Trump fan, is a Trump, Trump skeptic. He wouldn't tell me whether he would even vote for Trump. But he said, look, going after Joni is too far. You know, She's a Republican. She's conservative. She has conservative values. She fights for conservative principles. And she'll vote for a Republican majority leader, Mitch McConnell, which in the end, that's the big, that's the big vote, right? Who gets to lead the Senate? So there's a bit of a debate right now. You know, as we reported, these groups are beginning to spend some money, but it's not 
a ton of money. So I think we have to watch that. A lot of this is them sort of putting out web videos, which are fundraising tools for them to raise more money that goes back into a lot of their pockets. A point a lot of Republicans are very eager to make to reporters, I, I would I would add, yes. Right. And, you know, I, I pulled the ad data. They have only spent a couple hundred thousand dollars in a couple of these states. They spent against McConnell, obviously, in Kentucky. They spent against Ernst. They spent against McSally in Arizona. But the numbers are very, very small. So as like David Cottrell said, like they're not really invested in these races, but they want us to seem like they are. But they say like, look, they're, they're going to escalate this as this goes through the summer into November, which, which we will have to watch how far they go to try to take down the Senate. But in actuality, I mean, if the state of the election stays where it is right now, the biggest battle may be for the Senate. Uh, the presidency may be decided more in, in an emphatic way, and the, and the Senate may be a closer call. And there's been some discouraging news, I think, for Senate Republicans, even independent of Trump in the last uh, week or so. We're going to talk a little bit about that. But just real quick, let's let's stick with this, Dave. I mean, the, what the Lincoln Project and the other group, and we should say it's not just the Lincoln Project, this group, Republicans Against Trump, which is also spending money, has a budget of $10 million. So this election cycle has also indicated some willingness to criticize GOP senators. It seems like the argument that they're making, they're already thinking ahead right, to a post-Trump war for the GOP. That's what they hope is going to happen. And like we just said, that is a real possibility the way things stand now. And they're trying to show that anyone who doesn't actively oppose Trumpism and the president deserves to, to, to lose re-election, doesn't deserve to, to hold office. Are we seeing in some ways like the first forays into what a, a post-Trump GOP looks like, some of the first arguments? Even if Donald Trump loses the presidential election, Trumpism doesn't go away. He is still going to be around. He will be on Twitter. He will be probably granting interviews to OAN or Fox or Newsmax. His sons are still going to be around. Ivanka is going to be around. The Trump apparatus will still be there. And many of these senators, you know, Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley, even Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz, who have mainly been loyal to Trump, probably want to run for president again. So there will be a race within the party about how do you succeed Donald Trump? How do you become the next standard bearer for the Republican Party without alienating the 38 to 40% base that is going to be loyal to him no matter what, but also broadening that to a winning coalition? And, you know, these sort of never Trump Republicans say, this is why you have to get rid of the whole party. Even Susan Collins, the most moderate Republican that she is always concerned and hasn't done enough to stand up and really go against him. She needs to go down. The only one they exempt, I will say, is Mitt Romney. They say he's, right. he's the one that gets the exemption from these never Trump Republicans. But, you know, they, they feel like the whole lot, which means basically the entire Senate and the House, with the exception of Mitt Romney, needs to go. Now, that's not going to happen. But if they were to take down a couple of them, if they were to take, you know, Joni Ernst loses and Steve Daines loses, what they think could happen is that then scares other Republicans and, and, and makes them draw back and say, we have to reevaluate. Now we need to cut ties with Trump and Trumpism. You know, Francesca, the, the seemingly the obvious drawback to a plan like that, and Dave and I picked this up in our reporting, some Republicans, former New Jersey Governor Christine Todd Whitman, um, who is a never-Trumper, who is very publicly critical of the president, has been really since day one, you know, argued that she thinks someone like the Lincoln Project needs to be more thoughtful. She's not opposed in general to the idea and concept 
I should say, to the idea of running ads against some of these GOP enablers of the president the way she sees it. But her, her point, and I think, Francesca, this is a good one, you know, if you help Cory Gardner lose re-election, well, no one sees Cory Gardner as really the epitome of Donald Trump, right? No one sees, as Dave just mentioned, Susan Collins as the epitome of Donald Trump. If they lose, what you're going to be left with is Tom Cotton, right? And the center of gravity in that case, they would argue, then moves toward Donald Trump. Even at, even if he leaves it, you have more Trumpy-like GOP senators are the only ones left because the battleground senators are less Trumpy. I mean, that seems like that argument has some merit, Francesca. But there's also the senator's six-year terms, and Donald Trump, if he were reelected, would only be there for four years, or, or a Democrat, you know, for four years, either way. So you're really talking about electing people to six-year positions when we don't know what the next two years, four years is going to be. There could be so many variables in there of who ends up president and therefore which party ends up having control. If Democrats win the White House and then they also had the House and the Senate, you know, most of these, the people that we're talking about here are Republicans or even very conservative Republicans. And you're giving Democrats a, a carte blanche opportunity then to pass very progressive policies, which is not the same necessarily as just getting Donald Trump out of office, but Republicans retaining control of the, the Senate, which is essentially would serve as a check on a Democratic-run House and a Democratic-run White House. As far as Susan Collins is concerned, I really want to touch on that because I spoke to her last week and we spoke about the president's white power tweet that he then deleted and said that he didn't hear what was being said in the first few seconds of that video. And she said, I was absolutely a mistake, that he absolutely should have deleted it. When I pushed her a little bit, though, to, to be more critical, as is discussed in your article, she, she tried to say that she had been critical, that she had spoken out against President Trump on every single time that he has done something that's been controversial when it pertains to race. And I asked if it was an effective, his message that he's pushing right now, and I know we'll get into this later, but this is relevant to Susan Collins, if she thought that this was an effective strategy, the language that he is using right now, she was like, I'm not really involved in his re-election at all. I'm really focused on my own re-election. So she is cautiously distancing herself from the president. That's true. But but as you guys pointed out, she she did not like lay into the guy when, when we were speaking. She really could have. I gave her every opportunity and she chose not to do that. And I think that's really the what the epitome of her struggle is currently in her race is that she wants to, you know, she needs to distance herself from Donald Trump just enough. But she doesn't, I think, want to distance herself so much that then you also have the president coming at her, attacking her as well. And she's already in a pretty tight race against Sarah Gideon, the Democrat who is raising significant amounts of money. This is going to be a very telling race. What happens with the Senate? Yeah, I mean, finding that sweet spot between distancing yourself from the president, but as you say, not doing it so much that it catches the president's notice and then he starts tweeting about you. And then the Republican voters that you need to count on for your base suddenly say, turn up their nose at you and decide that they're not going to support you. I, I mean, it is so small that it might be non-existent because you, you have seen, and it is true certainly of Democrats and for a lot of people who don't like Trump and for a group like the, the Lincoln Project, where the sort of like the, the, the wag of the finger is not nearly enough. And it's almost like waving the, the proverbial red cape at, at the bull because they, they see that as, as triangulation for your own political purpose, but not actually doing anything substantive to push back against, against the president. It's a tricky place for all these Republican incumbents to be. And, and 
as you know, like if we remember even the last presidential race in 2016, I think it's been burned into the minds of all of these Republican strategists, and it's going to be severely tested, I think, in 2020. The Republican candidates who spoke out most forcefully against Trump in 2016, Joe Heck in Nevada, Kelly Ayotte in New Hampshire, they both lost. You know, they they both lost. They both lost in part because some of those Trump voters said, well, screw you. If you're not for the president, I'm not going to vote for you. And they lost very tight reelection. It's a difficult political position for these these incumbents to, to be in, Francesca. Well, and I also want to add on to what Dave was saying about the future of the Republican Party. It's not just these groups that you profiled that are, are worried about the future of the party. There, there are conservatives who, even if you do agree with Trump and you support Trump, recognize that after Donald Trump, that there's going to be something next. And they, they recognize that there are these forces, right, who don't like Donald Trump, who are already gearing up aggressively. And so they're starting to do the same thing. FreedomWorks, for instance, is, you know, really trying to position itself to be able to take advantage of whatever the next, you know, wave of the Republican Party is. And Dave mentioned mentioned the president's sons. It's my understanding that Donald Trump Jr. plans to stick around, plans to stay in politics. And you, and you can see that based on all of the political activity that he's had. He's not building up something just to be done when his father leaves office, whether that's it, you know, soon or, or it's in former years from now. So he is definitely someone that you'll have to continue to contend with if you're a Republican in the party. Dave, let's talk for a second about the Lincoln Project, because it is, I can't remember a group quite like it. Like you said, it is a lot of almost ex-Republicans at this point, Steve Schmidt, Rick Wilson, a handful of others who have been so publicly critical of the president. And their strategy seems to be, as best as I can tell, trying to troll Trump and his fans online. The question is, are they really moving any voters? Which is, after all, what the actual point should be, you would think. I don't think there's evidence that they're moving voters yet. That's why I think the Senate races will really be sort of a test for them, because some of these Senate races will be a few points. And are they investing in October in a really substantial way to, to, you know, to push Teresa Greenfield in Iowa over the finish line against Joni Ernst? I think they are largely a D.C. Twitter-happy insider sort of cheerleading squad. And, you know, you've got a lot of Democrats who love them. So now they're like BFFs with a lot of the Democratic operatives out there, which raises the questions about, you know, where their career path is next. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's sort of a, a very insider question. You know, the critique, and I had a, a Trump ally texting me this morning trying to, you know, get me to write a, a sort of a hit piece on the Lincoln Project being like, look at their donors. They're all Democratic donors. These are not Republicans. These guys are just trying to make themselves rich so they can buy another boat for the summer and <laughs> you know get one last contract in before like they're completely exiled for the party because he, you know his point was who's going to hire these guys even in a post-Trump era? You're going to hire the Republicans who tried to take down not only Trump but Republicans in the Senate so they have no power in Washington. So look, there's a lot of animus against the Lincoln Project and Republican voters against Trump. Someone was sending me information to ask them if they have more than one Republican donor. So look, I, I, it's going to be interesting to see exactly where the investment is. Because let's be clear, the Republican voters against Trump group is actually spending. They spend right. a bunch of money on advertisements from with testimonials. 
The Lincoln Project is a little more of a, a frat house vibe where they are <laughs> poking Trump in the eye every day online, putting an ad on Fox in D.C. to run, you know, three times during Tucker Carlson. So Trump will see it and then tweet about it. So then they will raise more money. And it's this circle. Does that have a big impact on the election? No, but it's fun for us in D.C. I mean, they clearly make ads, and I'm sure both of you notice the same thing. It's as if they're making anti-Trump ads for resistance Twitter. And, and it's a big difference from what ads actually move persuadable voters, right? Persuadable voters, the, the holy grail, something like pre-existing conditions. For Lincoln Project, and I saw the ad they released, it's, it's a whole mock ad about how Russia had really was thanking Americans for supporting Donald Trump. And that's the sort of thing that takes off on Twitter and gets a million likes in 90 minutes or, or whatever they, they get. And if you look at the Senate Democratic candidates ads, they don't talk about Trump. Right. John Ossoff, yeah. who is now in a competitive Senate race, he released his first ad this morning. He was straight to camera talking about how he fights corruption. It wasn't, he wasn't talking about Democratic issues. You go down the, the list of Democratic ads. They're talking about issues in their states. If they really wanted to be you know, strategic, th they would sort of follow that path. But no, they're just listing Senate names and being like, they're with Trump. We got to bash him. We got to take him out. Francesca, Georgia was mentioned, so I, I assume you want to jump in here. Actually, uh, I do, but it wasn't about Georgia. <laughs> oh, okay, all right, all right, all right. It wasn't about Georgia. I was going to say about, you, you were asking about the ads and who they're intended for. The Lincoln Project ads, they are intended for someone, and I agree with you, Dave, that it is Donald Trump, though. The, the ad about whispering, like, they're all around you, they're out to get you, and the leakers, like, that is intended for an audience of one to make him very paranoid about the leakers in the White House. And if you want to know what the outcome of that is, then, is if he acts more erratic as a result of that, then that essentially does their bidding for them. Like, it shows, right, like, here's some erratic behavior, you can't reelect this guy. And, and that is, I think, what the purpose of their ads are, whereas you're right that the, the other groups who are making these serious ad buys are spending on things like vote by mail to try and push senators to pass legislation that would fund, essentially fund more vote by mail efforts because they believe that there are a lot of people who will not show up to the polls because they're concerned about coronavirus. So, so that's a very different tactic and a very different strategy uh, but they certainly both want the same thing. Francesco, let's just take a step back briefly before we transition to the next topic, because there's been a big development in the battle for the Senate in just the last week. We have seen Democratic candidates report their fundraising numbers for the second quarter, and the numbers are incredible. It feels like almost every story or at least every other story about the second quarter fundraising indicates that it was some sort of all-time record for that state, for a Senate race. Just a few of them, uh, Cal Cunningham, who is running in a pivotal race in North Carolina against Tom Tillis, raised over $7 million, right? Jamie Harrison, who is still a long-shot candidate in South Carolina, seems like he is on his way to becoming an Amy McGrath-like figure on the left, raised $14 million in the state, more than $14 million. That's that's incredible. That's like really good for a, a major presidential candidate in a primary, right? That Those are the kind of numbers. And in fact, that's a lot more money than most of them raised um, in, in 2019. It's significantly more cash. Yeah. Well, who, who says 2024 is it, uh, already in Jamie Harrison's mind? But I mean, the, the problem it would seem is that you have a president who is unpopular and we know that the incumbent president, their party, the senators are really tied at the hip to the president. There is some ability mm. 
to to overperform, but it, it really seems like that ability shrinks every election cycle. And now at the same time, their Democratic candidates are raising incredible amounts of cash. I mean, it, it really feels like as much as the presidential race has shifted these last two months, so too has the, the Senate landscape. But I think it's related to the presidential race. Like if you also look at the fundraising numbers from June, the Biden campaign, you know, and the DNC also outraised the Trump campaign and the RNC for the first time. And, you know, the Trump campaign's response to that obviously is like, well, the president hasn't been fundraising. He has been, you know, fighting coronavirus at the White House and whatnot, and only had uh, three fundraising events in the month of June. And that's why they're falling behind a little bit. They refuse to acknowledge that there are other reasons that he could be falling behind. But it is accurate that he did not have in-person fundraising events, and those are, you know, often what have been the draw. He's also not doing, to my knowledge, uh, any any Zoom sorts of things. And I think that that is a technological advantage that Democrats, certainly the Biden campaign, has taken advantage of. He's having all, all kinds of, you know, Zoom fundraisers with with big names. And if the GOP wants to catch up in the money race, then they're they're going to have to get more creative technologically with the kinds of fundraisers and events that they're that they're doing. Let's talk about President Trump a little bit. As we indicated earlier, Francesca and I wrote a story this week about his reelection strategy, which seems to depend an awful lot on defending the legacy of Confederate leaders. That almost sounds like if, if I had heard myself saying this a year ago, that that would have been a parody. But in, in all sincerity and honesty, the president personally has chosen to, to focus on that. And Francesca, we wrote about it. We wrote about the reaction from even a lot of Republican strategists, some of whom are, you know, somewhat supportive of the president, at least. And, and they, they're just shaking their heads, right? They are struggling to understand why he's taken this approach. And this is something that has major implications, again, not just for his own reelection campaign, but the battle for the Senate. There's a difference between a narrow loss and a big loss, especially when it comes to the Senate. I think you and I were both pretty surprised by Frank Luntz's comments. Yes. Yeah. Tell, tell the listeners about that. They were really sharp. And he is someone, by the way, who is not against the president. That wasn't the point that he was trying to make at all. He was trying to say that there are ways that you can actually message around the things that Donald Trump wants to do. He's just not messaging around them correctly. If you want to talk about public safety, he was saying that use the words public safety, don't use law and order, because law and order does conjure up images of white you know, police or just police generally attacking protesters right now. So he was saying that the law and order message is a bad one. You know, the message about the silent majority, also a bad one. Warriors. He was saying that most people who are going to vote in this election don't see themselves as warriors for Trump, even if they're voting for Donald Trump because they think that he's the better candidate. So it was very interesting what he, what he's found because he's also he's an analyst, but he's also a pollster. He said he'd really been studying the messaging that has been being used about coronavirus as well, and saying that people do not want to reopen, which has been Trump's big thing. He is pushing it as the economy and reopening. They are very concerned still about health and and the safety and just that seems to be something that is really hurting Donald Trump right now. So I'll be curious to see whether or not the Trump campaign and whether or not the White House, when it comes from someone, right, who who is someone who has been on your side in the past, if they can hear it a little bit more from the never Trumpers, they just expect it from them. But with someone like Frank Luntz, he asked, 
who's writing the speeches in the White House. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, pretty blunt. And, and, yeah, pretty blunt. Like, who, he asked, who is writing the speeches in the White House? Like, they need to get a completely different message because they are misunderstanding the swing voters who are going to decide this election. And that is that is a very sharp. And we'll see if, how the, the White House and the Trump campaign reacts. Yeah, I mean, succinctly, the, the problem for the president is even if he were to win this, this particular culture war argument, which I, by no means I... I I don't think it's an easy one for him to, to win. I think most Americans seem like um, they're, if not evenly split, you know, that there's obviously a lot of resistance to, to keeping those statues up. The point is, re regardless of that, is even if he wins that argument, I just don't know how many voters are going to care. That's not what they're thinking about right now. It's right. the global pandemic that has shut down the economy, that has endangered them and their loved ones. And, and the president's response and focus on that seems to be slim to non-existent right now. And the Trump campaign hasn't really been pushing that either. Early on, they were like pushing what a great job that Donald Trump had been doing with regard to that. But they, they have, to a certain extent, really moved off of that and moved more on to this trying to define Joe Biden in all the ways that we, we've discussed on this podcast before. They're more on that message. They seem to think that that is what will will turn this around for them. Not that they think it needs to be turned around, by the way, but they seem to think that that is what will win this election for them, is, is if they can successfully define Joe Biden as like not up to the task, right? And surrounding himself with all kinds of leftists. That, that's an interesting strategy as well. And again, one that just generally Franklin's had said that if Trump continues down the current path that he's on, then it will be a bad outcome for him in November. Okay, before before we, we wrap this up, I do want to turn to the most important subject of the week. Kanye West announced his bid for the presidency, seemingly, over Twitter, over the holiday weekend. Dave, I'm, I'm just going to turn it to you for the, the listeners at home that don't know. Dave, Dave is a, a fan of Kanye West. Some would say a scholar. Dave, are we to take this seriously, in all seriousness, are we to take this seriously in any way? I would not take it seriously yet. I am a, I'm a like Kanye West stan, so I'm like constantly defending him. I think he's an amazing creator. I love his music. He like got me into music a decade ago. I think he's like sort of a master of media as well, sort of like our president. So he's got a new album coming out. He also has a new Gap clothing line that he just signed. The guy knows how to get attention. He has all these lyrics in his songs that he's wanted to run for president in 2020. Here it is. Here it is in the middle of July. But is he taking any formal steps? Obviously not. Until he tries to get ballot access in some of these states, to me, that would be an indication. You know, he did this long interview with Forbes, which was somewhat provocative, somewhat cringeworthy on some of his answers, even as a fan and he'll do more interviews, and he knows how to get media attention. And it was amazing for me to watch political reporters, serious, well-respected political reporters, sort of diving in, sort of making fun of him, but taking it seriously enough to say, well, why is Twitter still running ads on him if he's a cat? I'm just like, wow, you guys are really taking the bait on this in a way, <laughs> in a way that I, I am not taking the bait on yet. I think it's fun to watch. Obviously, we need to watch it as, as political reporters. But there's not anything behind it other than a tweet and a Forbes interview. But he's a celebrity, you know, and he's a provocative celebrity. So he says really controversial things. Those are the ingredients that make for great media stories, as 
all of us would would agree, right? So he knows how to do that very well. But I would also say, knowing his music very well, he's got an album in the works. He's got a clothing line that's going to be coming out with Gap in the fall. Pretty opportune time for him to get his name out there and in and in the bloodstream more. For the aggregators. I think there's also a sense, Dave, that like you just can't ignore some of the things that he said in Forbes too, right? And, and you can't just focus on the things that he said about Joe Biden and Donald Trump. It's, you know, how seriously do you take those answers and, and what prominence? I'm not saying ignore them either. Yeah. To be clear, my litmus test is when like, when does the New York Times do like a full deep dive on Kanye? Because like, right, they're the gray lady. They're the America's newspaper. If they do it, that will be fascinating to me. Right now it's tweets and Twitter and some fun banter and, you know, some witty comments. When reporters start to really do a deep dive on it, then it, to me, it will, it will have moved to another level. But as reporters, we should also, you know, that's to me, his comments about Biden and Trump are like a, a one or two day story. If he starts campaigning in states and hires a political team and, and puts together an operation. And well, you got to have that field staff, Dave. You got to have that field staff. <laughs> you got to have the field staff. Right. But if we start to take tangible steps as, you know, the, the same steps we would apply to, frankly, anyone running, then I think we take it a little more seriously. If he's just tweeting about it, though, we got to be careful about how much time we dedicate to that. He's a celebrity. So what, what he says about Joe Biden is interesting and newsworthy for about 24 hours, but probably not worth more than that. At this so, point, for the aggregators, your your headline from this conversation is Katniss colon, I'm not taking the bait. That's 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 your headline. I mean, <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Not yet. That's in the subhead. Okay. So real quick, I'm gonna turn to what is my favorite segment every week where Francesca and Dave are gonna tell me something new, fresh, original, or interesting out of their notebook. Francesca, you're up first. Oh no, I'm on the spot now. All right. So one thing that we didn't get a chance to include in our story is the president's campaigning and where he's campaigning currently. And we wrote about the message being baffling, but his campaign strategy just all around is baffling to some folks right now. You know, one of the things that Luntz told me is that he couldn't understand why Oklahoma was where Donald Trump decided to have a re-election rally. Like, that's not a state that's going to be a real swing you know, swing state for him. Certainly, the president is having a rally this weekend in New Hampshire. And I've written extensively about the state of New Hampshire and why I think that it could be a swing state this time and something that could really matter in this election. So uh, Luntz said he thought it was smart to have a rally there. But he's... Notably, it's not that he's campaigning in Wisconsin. He's not campaigning in Pennsylvania. He's not currently campaigning in some of these swing states. So if you're going to take the risk of even bothering to go out and have a rally right now, which, again, the experts would say is not a great idea either, why isn't he doing that in these, these key and critical swing states that he absolutely needs to win? He's visited Arizona a couple times, too. But again, that wouldn't have originally been on our list of like the court, the quarter in the upper Midwest that he absolutely needs to win. In Florida, he is having a a fundraiser this weekend in Florida, but it, but that's not the same as having a, a rally. And we I think we all know why he's not having a rally in Florida this weekend, given the cases of COVID. But but it, it again uh, still seems to be that the that the Trump campaign continues to struggle to figure out how to campaign in these places where he absolutely needs to be, and then currently they're just not. And I, I would just to piggyback off that point, maybe the strangest decision of all that the Trump campaign is making, spending real money in New Mexico. 
right now, a state he lost by eight points. There is some suggestion that Latino voters are actually a little bit better for him this time around than they were even in 2016, even after everything that happened. But again, it's a state he lost by eight points in a map. Now you want a campaign is overfunded. Yes, yes, that's exactly Too much money. (laughs) Dave, what do you got? So obviously tens of millions of dollars have been spent on advertising, television advertising. So far, May and June were the biggest months for that. And an analysis of the entire country, I found to be very interesting, where the most ads had been targeted. And the, the market with the, with the most presidential television ads, world please, is Grand Rapids, Michigan. And the interesting part about Grand Rapids, Michigan, is that it is Kent County. It is a Republican-leaning county. It has gone for the Republican candidate in four of the last five presidential elections, but Trump only narrowly won it in 2016. He only carried it by a point. Grand Rapids is obviously more liberal. That's the city core, but the suburbs, it's very Republican. So I would just watch that county. The Trump campaign is pouring a ton of money into it. They're the leading spender in in the Grand Rapids market. And for election night junkies, I would watch Grand Rapids and Kent County. If Trump is not carrying that, it's going to be a rough night for him in Michigan and and probably the rest of the country. Dave, great detail. I would just say quickly relaying something that a Democratic strategist has told me in the last week, the way to reconceptualize this race. He is working on the 2020 election in some form or fashion. He just said the challenge for the anti-Trump factions has shifted over the last month. It has gone from trying to win over those Obama-Trump voters to, to convince them to vote for Joe Biden. It has transitioned to trying to keep them in Joe Biden's camp, because many of them, the ones who are going to switch, have already decided, at least here in the summer, that they plan to vote for Joe Biden. The question is now, how do we keep them there? And that is something of a different challenge, this Democratic strategist suggesting to me it's not as if they're going to relent on negative Donald Trump ads, but he did say that there is probably more reason than before to run positive ads, or at least run comparative ads, showing a contrast, uh, a favorable contrast, of course, between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And they thought that this was uh, something of a, of a shift and something just to indicate just how far this race has come in the last few months, how some Democratic strategists are seeing things. It's not just about winning over Trump voters, it's about now keeping them in Joe Biden's camp. Uh, just something to, to think about. Dave and Francesca, fantastic job as always. I'm glad we got to talk about Kanye West uh, in there. Thank, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thanks. I want to thank our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and our executive producer, Davin Coburn. And thank you, our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. Talk to you next week.